So we're in a series on the emblems of grace. What does it look like? What does grace look like? What does it look like to identify grace in others and honor grace in others? How can we recognize the emblems of grace on other people's lives and celebrate that? And today we're going to look at a few short grace parables. And we have some, we're going to have some time to pray for one another towards the end. We're going to get at this thing of grace for, from a slightly different perspective than the past few weeks. Today we're going to focus on the truth that grace is not simply something that God gives, but it is who He is. It's not something that He just gives, but it's who He is, meaning that if you experience any sort of goodness, if you come across any sort of kindness, if you have anyone or anything to be thankful for in your life, it's not just a gift from God, but it is God expressing himself, his very nature to you in a very significant and personal way. I've been recently reading uh, tons and tons. I'm not, I guess this does put me in the hipster camp, <laughs> but I've been reading tons and tons of um, Father Richard Rohr recently. Rohr is a, a Catholic priest, and he's just... He's like, he's like 71 years old, right? But for some reason, his main readership is like males 18 to 35. Like he's saying something right now. He's saying something for our generation. And he's saying something um, significant in the area of grace. And so I've been reading lots of, lots of him recently. And, and Rohr uh, puts it this way. He says that, that the goodness of God fills in all the gaps of the universe without discrimination or preference. God is the gratuity of absolutely everything. The space in between everything is not space at all, but spirit. God is the goodness glue that holds the dark and the light of things together. The free energy that carries all death across the great divide and transmutes it into life. When we say Christ paid the debt once and for all, it simply means that God's job description is to make up for all the deficiencies in the universe. What else would God do? God is not something, grace is not something God gives, grace is who God is. Grace is what God does to keep all things that God has created in love alive forever. Sometimes the name gets in the way of experience because too many have named God something other than grace. It's true, if God is one thing, he is grace. He's not angry with you or with I this morning. He's not mad at us. He's for us. God is in your corner. He's not out to scold us or to put us in time out. He is grace in his favor. He is favor. He is kindness. I love that Jesus is here among us this morning. Such a tangible reminder in worship that he comes and he walks in the rows. He's not simply an idea or a God that stands far off, but that God comes down and that he comes to be with us, and he walks in the room despite our brokenness, and it's actually our weakness that he's attracted to. Remember, the kingdom is resting upon brokenness. The kingdom rests upon weakness. The world will tell you the opposite, 
that it's social Darwinism, that only the strong survive. But see, the kingdom is opposite. It's actually our brokenness that Jesus is so attracted to. So when we lift him up out of weakness and out of um, exhaustible resource, he comes and shows us that he is inexhaustible resource and he's attracted to our brokenness. He walks in as the goodness glue to every situation we find ourselves in. He's the goodness glue that makes the nonsensical things sensical. That's the work of grace. He holds it together as the adhesive that is stronger than any superglue that the world could come up with to ease our minds. All of the loss, all of the suffering we experience, and in all of the joy and the celebration, there he is in the middle. No gaps, no spaces, no empty spaces, simply the outstretched arms of Christ crucified. The goodness glue holding all things in tension, and still he is eternally kind and eternally good. He is grace. Eugene O'Neill once said that man is born broken. He lives by mending. The grace of God is glue. And I want, I want us to encounter something of his presence this morning to feel him walking in the rows as we lift him up. He's doing something special in our time, yet through ordinary and, and everyday moments, and we just happen to catch ourselves on a moment that's called Sunday. He's always at work. There's never a time he's not working. Jesus said, my father's always at work. Specifically, I want to journey lost today, losing things, the lost and the found, and what, what that looks like in, in these parables. Parables are stories that Jesus told to convey deeper truth or deeper meaning, but basically he told stories. He used the vehicle of storytelling a lot like we do today, and he used stories... Um, a lot of times people would come and listen to Jesus' stories and they'd be more confused than they were when, they first, when he first started telling them the story. They're like, I thought I had this thing figured out. He's like, the kingdom's like a mustard seed. They're like, what? What are you talking about? You know, and they leave more confused than ever. But they, they draw us back to the foundational truth about what God is like, who God is like. Jesus says, you want to know what the Father's like? Here's what he's like. This is who he is. And then he'll tell a story. And so we're going to journey a couple of parables together and try. They're not, they're not necessarily for us to like emulate. Like this is, oh, like this is what this dude was like and the, char- and the character was like in the parable. So we have to be like that too. It's not necessarily like that with a parable. But I do believe that there are some nuggets that we can draw from it. Chicken nuggets. There are some nuggets that we can, <laughs> right? little smile there. That's good. Little smile never hurt anybody. Or gold nuggets, who knows? But um, we're just going to journey it together and um, see what the Lord would do in that. It's my hope that we would uh, see not just the, the poor sinner that, we're, that Luke is writing about here, that Jesus is telling the story about, that, but that we would be attentive to the lost places in ourselves and come to realize that those are the exact places that Jesus wants to come and heal in us. 
He's attracted to desperation and weakness. He pounces on the broken. That's who he is. He goes after the sick. He pursues lost people. And I want us to spend some time praying for one another at the end. I think it's going to be good stuff for us today. So let's pray real quick and we'll invite his presence. Father, thanks so much that you're with us. Thank you that you love us, that you're for us, that you go after the lost and the least and the last. Thank you that you invite everyone to the table. Come and eat. I pray that we would find a feast this morning in the treasury of your word. God, would you speak to us? Would you bring some into relationship with you today? Not through my words, but simply, God, through, through your spirit, that you would be drawing hearts this morning, that we would be doing more than simply listening to a talk, but that we would be encountering you, Jesus, through the pages of your word, that your word would come alive to us, that your word would quicken us, something in us to set a fire in our hearts to see the city come to life. And that we would truly say, after we leave today, we would truly, your prayer would become our prayer. Your kingdom come on earth as it already is in heaven. We just join in with that prayer now in Jesus' name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, so we're going to be in Luke 15. And we're going to do two short stories here. Lost sheep, lost coin. And we read in Luke 15, verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Stop right there. We have to stop right there. And there it is, plain as day. There it is. Don't you find this an annoying part of Jesus' character? <laughs> Am I allowed to say that, real holy pastor, that I find this bit of Jesus' character really annoying? And the reason that I find it annoying is because that Jesus is always doing this. He's amazing, isn't he? He's always hanging out with people that I would probably rather not hang out with. And he's always going into places that I would rather not go. That's just like Jesus. And here he is again. He's hanging around folks that you and I a lot of times want nothing to do with. The sinners and the tax collectors. So amazing about him that when we follow him, he'll lead us to places we really don't feel like going and he'll lead us to people we would rather not hang out with. But that's the thing with Jesus. If we really desire to bring life to the city, he's going to call us to hang out with folks we don't necessarily want to hang out with. And isn't this great? Hear how the religious say of Jesus. This is great. This is a nugget here. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. I think that's gold. Jesus doesn't just tolerate sinners. He doesn't just put up with sinners. He eats with them. He doesn't scold them or correct them. He hangs out with them and eats with them. But Luke does say that Jesus receives a bit of criticism here for doing this. And the basic foundational thing here is the word sinners. Who is this? 
Aren't we all just sinners saved by grace, we say in the church? Who is Jesus talking about in this parable? Who are the religious leaders talking about? Jesus is embracing the very people the rest of the religious society rejects. Who are the losers? That's who Jesus is hanging around when he tells this story. You've got the religious leaders. They're in need of no goodness glue. And then you've got the tax collectors and sinners, and they're in need of gorilla glue. Who are the burdens to society in our day? Who are the illegal immigrants? Who are the refugees? Who are the forgotten and the outcasts? These folks are present, and Jesus, he actually enjoys and prefers their company above the religious leaders of the day. Doesn't just tolerate them. He loves hanging out with them. And in the book of Luke alone, he's criticized four times for eating with them. Catches all kind of flack for the people, the crowd he, he's hanging out with. I believe God would be calling Vineyard Cleveland to be a courageous people who not only hangs out with, but eats with sinners. To welcome and eat with them. Who among us hasn't been a them You know the whole song and dance, the us and them routine. You've played it. We're not like them. They're not like us, our church. You've played that game before, us and them. Aren't we all just seeking for something larger than ourselves? Something good and true to let us know that we're not alone, that we belong. I don't know about your journey, but if it weren't for a woman named Sarah, my wife, I, w- I would not be here today. That's a story for another day. But Sarah, made a, Sarah created a space for me to belong before I believed. I don't know how many of you know that dynamic in our story together. I didn't know, I didn't know Jesus when I met Sarah But she made a space for me to belong before I believed. People are desperate for that. They're seeking that. They want that. They they long for that safe place more than what you think they do. They, They long for it. They long for it, to know that there's a God and his name is Jesus and he loves us so very much that they're are people out there desperate to know that God is real and we're worried here in the church about the health of our inner child. You know, we, we greet each other on Sundays and we're saying, how are, you do- how are you doing inside? Is everything okay? Is everything okay with you? We give each other a hug. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with fellowship, with Christian community. But there are people beyond these walls who believe, who really believe that God hates them. Do you know that? There are people who walk around in the streets carrying the sense of God hating them, despising them, being lied to by the enemy. 
There are dancers out there tonight who will undress for men on some stage somewhere because they believe there is no other worth for them. Tonight, there is a man who will believe the lie again that his freedom can only be found in an escape at the bottom of another empty bottle. There are folks who are simply waiting for you. They're, wait, they're dying. They're waiting for you at your work to ask them if you can pray for them or invite them to put their faith in Jesus. There are elderly in our community who will again flip on the television screen and watch just whatever's on because they're so lonely because no one has engaged them and listened to their stories. Young people, I'm speaking to you directly now. Because we've, we've forgotten about a generation. We've forgotten that there are people in assisted living homes just waiting to share stories with you and I. And I'm not saying all of this to lay a heap of guilt on us. I'm just saying that there are children, folks, in Parma Heights, two blocks away, who will go to bed hungry again without literal parents. And we're too busy having Sunday meetings to be interrupted by the one who was originally supposed to be the subject of our Sunday meetings. And he gently, caringly reminds us again. He's like, hey, guys, can I interrupt you for a second? I'm out there. I'm in Berea. I'm in Middleburg Heights. I'm in Shaker Heights. I'm downtown Cleveland. I'm in Lakewood. And I'm on the move. Aslan is on the move this morning in Cleveland. And it's not in the building. It's outside of these one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight walls. Outside of the octagon of death. There's life to be had. Right now, and it's not all negative as well. Right now, there are young artists and entrepreneurs who are hatching ideas birthed from the mind of God that will bring peace and healing to the city of Cleveland. There are songwriters who will pen a song tonight that will bring freedom and hope to many people in the city in the coming months and years. There's life that's coming to the city through the presence of Jesus in his people to fulfill her unique destiny in the streets. The Holy Spirit was not given for better meetings. It was given to transform cities. That was really, really good. Let's say that again. The Holy Spirit was not given to have better meetings. The Holy Spirit was given to transform cities. You carry the climate of the kingdom on your life. You cannot turn it on and turn it off like a light switch. You're like Olaf from the movie Frozen. You carry the climate everywhere you go. So it doesn't matter what season you're in. If you're depressed or if you're happy, if you're joyous, if you're not, you carry the climate of the kingdom with you. That means when you walk into the room, the atmosphere shifts in that room because hope walked in with you. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's so much truth packed into that little scripture. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And what's in you wants to infect what's out there. What's in you is more, practically speaking, I, the God's honest truth, what's in you is, is more transferable than what's going to get on you if you go out there. That's right. Come on. That's right. 
It's the power of God for our salvation. And if we have a Father who loves us so dearly, do you think He would send us out without any authority? He wouldn't, because He knows what we need. He knows the journey ahead, so He sends us out with authority. Transform people, transform places. Okay, so they're attracted to him, the sinners and the tax collectors. There's something about this teacher that was unlike religious leaders of the day who they despised. They came to listen to him all day when they couldn't bear to hear one more heavy, burdensome word that came out of the Pharisees' mouths. And I love the two postures that these groups take. It's great. The action of the tax collectors and the sinners was to listen They listened. The action of the religious leaders was to grumble, gossip, and mutter. If you and I are to get closer to Jesus' heart for the city of Cleveland, if we desire to give this church away to the city and serve the community, which we will do, we're going to need to listen. We're going to need to listen. So much of the time there is this grumbling and gossip in the church that distracts her from fulfilling her unique destiny. We forget the posture we took when we first came into the kingdom. The action we were found in when we entered the kingdom was that of listening at the feet of Jesus. There's something different about this rabbi. Who is this? What is this new teaching and with authority? That was our posture when we came into the kingdom. But so often the action and posture shifts when we live in an isolated culture for an extended amount of time to one of grumbling and muttering. And ultimately, we become like the very thing we were trying to get away from in the first place. We think to ourselves and sometimes say to others, who is this man welcoming sinners and eating with them? Or who are these people downtown wanting to pray for others in the freezing cold? What are they doing? Church becomes like that. And I'm here to say to you and to me alike, The language of complaint and gossip does not belong on royal lips. If you claim Jesus as Lord this morning, you are a child of the King, and the King loves his bride, the church. So at the heart of what we speak at all times is love and encouragement. Our words should be fitting of royal children as heirs in the kingdom. They should be our words like that of the writer of Proverbs, like Solomon says. Our words should be like golden apples in settings of silver. When we speak, they should just set there in people's hearts for, for people to marinate over the truth of those words that are coming out, realizing that we carry the culture and the climate of the kingdom with us wherever we go. And that we've been given the gentle authority to shift the atmosphere of any room we walk into. Your words should be uplifting and encouraging like golden apples and settings of silver. Our words should be like living water to others, nourishing. Our words shouldn't be like the water of Flint, Michigan. Or water, our water should be like, you know, Fiji water. Or like vitamin water, enhanced to bring life to the ears of the hearer, not to poison and cut down, but to lift up and bring life to people. And I wanted to show a clip from a movie to illustrate this. This is from um, Lord of the Rings, from the Two Towers. It's great. Watch this. My lord, Gandalf the Grey is coming. 
courtesy of your hall is somewhat lessened of late. Theoden King. He's not welcome. Why should I welcome you, Gandalf Stormcrow? A just question, my liege. Late is the hour in which this conjurer chooses to appear. Last spell I named, ill news is an ill guest. Be silent. Give your full tongue behind your teeth. <laughs> I have not passed so far in death to banding crooked words with a witless wolf. Stop. I told you to take the Stop! Good. The illustration here is that folks of Vineyard Cleveland will be known in, in the coming months as folks uh, whose words, as Gandalf said, drew, will be like uh, dr- drawing poison from a wound. How good is that? When Jesus, when Jesus speaks a word, that's what it's like. And that's what I believe that we're called to step into as a community that we would be known as people who carry life in our words, that our, our words would be pregnant with hope and brimming over with expectancy for what God will do among us now and in the future.
that our words would be filled with grace towards and for others, that we would be quick to listen and slow to speak, quick to respond in grace and slow to react in judgment. And then Jesus told them this parable in verse 3. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And the first thing that comes to my mind is that no sheep rancher in their right mind would do this. That's a crappy sheep rancher right there. In our culture, no one would do this. We would say, that's poor. That's poor farming, and that's poor shepherding. No one leaves all of, your, all of your investment, all of your cattle, all of your stock to go for one measly sheep off, lost somewhere. Really, does that happen in our world? No, it doesn't. And Jesus says, this is who the Father is. He leaves the 99 to go after one. It's hilarity at its finest that a sheep rancher would leave all of his money, right? To go for one because that one is more valuable than the crowd. You see, he wants all to come into salvation but is willing to go after the one. And repenting means to change our minds, change, transform our minds, to change our minds about who we think Jesus is. Some of us believe that he isn't out He isn't out looking for us, or that he's forgotten about us, or that he doesn't care that we've been lost. But Jesus says he's like that shepherd who drops everything in the moment to go look for you. He's saying that's what he's like. You may think that Jesus doesn't care that you feel alone in your struggle, or as if you are a sheep caught in the thunderstorms of life on the side of a jagged mountain somewhere away from his watchful eye. But Jesus sees you. He sees you, and he's dropped everything to come looking for you. What he's saying here is that nothing else is in the entire heavens and earth could be more important, could have greater priority than your rescue back into his care. And he's willing to do anything, to go anywhere, just to see you brought home safe and sound, carrying you upon his strong and capable shoulders. I love how Jesus says that the shepherd looks until he finds. He looks until he finds. How many of us this morning need to hear that God as the goodness glue, holding together the sensical and nonsensical things of life and death, is not giving up on us? Our hearts need to hear that the shepherd leaves the 99 to go find the one, and he won't give up looking until he finds it, until he finds us. To Jesus, we're not just some nameless face lost in the crowd. This is who Jesus is. He will leave no stone unturned. He's like the lighthouse, scanning 
scanning desperately the troubled seas of life, searching for the lost ship. He's like the treasure hunter with the metal detector sweeping the beach until he finds what he sees as eternally valuable. He's like the St. Bernard, search and rescue dog, who won't give up climbing the mountain until he finds the lost hiker. He's called the hound of heaven. He's relentless in his pursuit of our hearts and our minds. He won't give up. He won't give up. He's in relentless pursuit of the lost and the least and the last and he won't give up until he finds who he's looking for and who is Jesus looking for who's he looking for I believe here in this passage that he's looking for someone to rejoice with he's looking for someone to party with come on He's looking for someone to share in the spoils of life with. He's looking for folks like me and like you who need to know that life is to be celebrated in the goodness thereof. In fact, grace is the celebration of life. Grace relentlessly hounds all the Debbie Downers and all of the sorrowful Sams in the world. Grace is shouting its way through the streets of the universe flinging uh, sweetness into every window and pounding on every door until all of the prodigals come out at last and dance and the elder brothers finally take their fingers out of their ears and join the celebration too. Come on, that's good news. Jesus is looking for someone to rejoice with and he brings the lost sheep home to a celebration. That's the good news, that even even the elder brother finally takes his fingers out of his ears and joins the celebration as well. Yeah, that's good. That's good news to to some of the religious in the house this morning. Okay? It's good. You get to play a part too. In the end, you see it doesn't matter because it's not dependent upon what you do or do not do. So you can stick your fingers in your ears and judge the sinner all of you all you want, but you'll end up at the same table as he at the very end of things. Come on with that. Okay, lastly, the, um, the lost coin. Let's do this one really, really quickly because I've got to tell you a story. It's really good. Okay, um, verse 8. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins. She's got 10. And she loses one. Does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. My goodness, the angels of God are doing a lot of rejoicing because of what's happening at Market Square Park. Come on. Well, I've got this friend. His name is Luke, Luke Tunin. Luke is a very dear friend of mine. He's my age, and he's such like an old soul. He and his wife, Allison, are dear friends of ours, and they journeyed life with us while we lived in Chicago, in Hyde Park. As I was preparing this week, I thought of my friend Luke because he has a special hobby. You see, Luke and Allison moved to Chicago around the same time as Sarah and I did in 2008. Chicago being the big city, city it is, most everyone who lives in the city makes their morning commute by bike or by train or by foot. So as you can imagine, Sarah and I did a lot of walking in our time 
in Chicago. I walk five or, or six blocks to work every morning. Luke was no different. He walked every day to take the train or to his next meeting. But Luke did something different than I did on my walks. You see, where I was completely oblivious, Luke was intentional and purpose. And what, you may ask, was he intentional and purpose about on his walks? Well, my friend Luke's special hobby was and is penny collecting. He loves to collect pennies. Every time Luke leaves the apartment, he scans the ground ferociously in search of lost and forgotten pennies. You might assume that a busy city like Chicago, with people everywhere, that not many pennies escape being recaptured by the passersby. But you would be wrong. Over the course of a few years, Luke has filled many, many mason jars with penny upon penny upon penny. There they are, right there. He's sending me these texts this week of his pennies. Now three... Um, and every, you know, every once in a while, he'll cash the pennies in. Sometimes as he and Allison go out for evening walks, they joke with one another saying, we can't go home until we found at least 20 cents, which they tell me is a tough assignment. In fact, I chatted with him this week about his hobby, and he had just found three cents on that very day that we chatted. He was really excited about that, found three cents. What I love about Luke's hobby is the fact that he's going about his everyday, ordinary life. He's not treasure hunting, so to speak, but he is intentional in his penny walks. These coins are lost. And unlike the parable that Jesus tells, the pennies Luke finds in Chicago are forgotten as well. Some folks will intentionally throw pennies on the street. I've seen this before. Have you seen? Have you seen this? They'll throw pennies intentionally. The penny has become seemingly worthless in our culture for many folks' eyes. After all, what can you buy for a penny these days? Folks used to ask a penny for your thoughts. And now, nowadays, we give our opinions and say, well, for what it's worth, here's my two cents placing such a high value on our own opinions. And opinions are everywhere, aren't they? Well, today's uh, penny includes about 97% zinc and only 2% copper. Like they, they used to be all copper, but if you happen to find a copper penny from 1943, you could sell it for as much as $82,500. But these pennies aren't worthless to my friend Luke. They mean something. These pennies are valuable to Luke. It's become like his, this quest for him. These pennies have purpose for Luke. They've come to symbolize a day well spent. They're an emblem of a day that included getting outside with breath in his lungs and strength in his bones that he went somewhere, that he journeyed that day. A day that involves walking to work is a gift, and a penny in his pocket meant that he went to work that day. It's more than simply one cent. That penny has meaning to Luke. Some of the coins have been laying there for years, maybe, old and worn out from the buses running over them, and cold weather and salt, 
Look at those ones that he found. You see, we're not talking about pennies anymore, are we? Okay, when I'm telling you this story. Some of the coins have been... You get that, right? Okay. (laughs) Wanted to make sure you were... We're not not talking about pennies anymore, even though we're talking about pennies. We're not talking about pennies. Okay. Some of the coins have been laying there for years, maybe old and worn out from buses running over them and cold weather and salt from the salt trucks in winter. But Luke takes the time to notice. And there's the difference. It makes all of the difference in the world. Luke takes the time to notice. He stoops down, he picks them up, and he puts them safely in his pocket every time he finds one. And he's consistent. Remember, he's been at this hobby for over seven years. He picks up every penny he sees. And the more he's looked, the better he's become at it. Sometimes he'll walk home a different route than he took in the morning in hopes that he would find another penny. Sometimes he even jumps out into a busy street in front of a bus to pick them up. There's danger involved. And what I love most is that Luke particularly loves to find the severely damaged pennies. They're his favorite. He told me this week, they're my favorite. Look at that one with the the hole in it. They're his favorite. Those pennies, those are pennies that have a story to tell. The pennies that have been there for years just waiting to be discovered in all of their magnificence. Isn't this just like Jesus in the kingdom? As the woman who had lost that one coin, or as my friend Luke in his quest to save the pennies, so is Jesus in his pursuit of us. He's intentional in his pursuit of our hearts and our minds. He doesn't just like us or or tolerate having us around. That's not the way God sees you. He's like, oh, shoot, I've got to hang out with them again. He's not simply putting up with you. He loves hanging. He loves who you are. He created you. Loves hanging out with you. He loves just to be with you. And this is the miracle of grace. This is the good news that God has become a man. He stooped down in the person of Jesus to rescue and to save us. He's come to find what was lost to search us out and to bring us back home not to criticize us or to scold us but to celebrate with us and rejoice that we've come home we're like that penny lost on the snowy streets of Chicago awaiting to be found by Jesus some of us are weathered by the storms of disappointments in our life but we mean something to him. We mean something to him. And this morning, some of you might feel like that sheep, the lost one. And a lot of times we focus on the lostness. But remember who our father is. That he leaves the 99 in search of that lost one. It's pathetic. No, I'm telling you, no farmer, no sheep rancher in their right mind would do that. It's financial suicide. He wouldn't be a sheep rancher much longer. And some of you need to hear afresh this morning the gospel. 
And the good news is that Jesus came down in search of the lost sheep and the lost coins. And if you feel lost in your life, at this juncture in your life, Jesus is calling this morning and he's calling you to come back home. Come home. 